Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello, I'm Dr. Matt Hannon. Hi, and I'm Dr. Rebecca Ford, and welcome to Local Zero. So how we get around has an enormous impact on our health, communities and climate ambitions. Whether we jump in the car, dust off the bike or hop on the train, our transport choices and infrastructure are critical to the net zero transition. So today we're talking all things transport. And this really is one of the biggest and most critical parts of the net zero puzzle. How do we encourage people and policymakers alike to support sustainable transport? What can be done at the local level to stimulate that change? And how can we ensure that future transport systems are meeting the needs of everyone in society? These are just some of the big questions we'll be addressing in this episode. So our guests today are Professor Ian Doherty, an expert in transport policy at the University of Stirling. And we also have Dr. Debbie Hopkins, an Associate Professor in Sustainable Urban Development at the University of Oxford. We're not seeing any real behavioural shifts, policy shifts in any large ways. So yeah, it's proving to be a very stubborn sector. It's head scratching time. Well, we actually have to do something which is pretty, pretty bold in terms of you know a policy intervention, and most people don't like being told what to do. We'll also hear from Leo Murray, Director of Innovation at climate change charity Possible, about some of the most exciting developments in local transport action. Low traffic neighbourhoods, they are an incredibly effective intervention at getting people to shift from driving cars in cities to walking and cycling. You just see very large increases in people walking and cycling. So you're listening to Local Zero. You can find us on social media with the hashtag Local Zero and tweet us at energyrev underscore UK with any questions or comments you may have. Please mind the gap when alighting from this train. Okay, so as ever, we've got our trusty producer at hand, Fraser Stewart. Fraser, how are you getting on? I am getting on very, very well, Matt. Thank you. How's everyone else doing? Yeah, well, I'm doing all right. Yeah, I'm sitting here. Absolutely bathed in sunshine. I forgot what the what the warmth what the warm sensation was. Uh, so <laughs> Yes, glad uh, glad it's back. Glad spring is here. Becky, how are you faring? Yeah, very well, thanks, Matt. Oh, at, like you, just absolutely loving this sunshine. It's turned me into like the most positive person in this last week. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe that will shine through today whilst we're talking. Absolutely. 
And I guess, you know, in the context of today's episode, uh, we're all doing this online. In fact, we've done all of our episodes, all 10. This is our uh, 10th episode, which we need some kind of some sound effect. I'm sure we'll ask Dave to add in a little popper or something in the background. <laughs> um, that's 10, 10 episodes online, working from home. So given the, the episodes on transport, it feels pretty, uh, pr- pretty relevant to, to, you know, to how we're living and working today. Yeah, it's disappointing that we can't record this one out in the park in the sunshine. You know, like you do at school, you could go and take your class outside. <laughs> Absolutely. Not today. Not for a few weeks yet, Fraser. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I, I guess, you know, it's almost a year today as well. In fact, I think it is longer than a year today that we've all been working from home. I've almost forgotten what transport's like. Yes, what is transport? Uh, aside from when I'm looking after my kids, we live very close to the um, to the train station. And so sometimes just to, to beat the boredom of the house, I take my kids out for a walk. We walk down the the bin lane alley and and weave our way around to the train station to to wave to the driver <laughs> sounds an inviting walk <laughs> i know is that the proper name of the street becky is it called bin lane, <laughs> That's bin lane alley yeah <laughs> it's actually lovely i mean they they the kids often pick me flowers from bin lane alley i get some lovely. beautiful wild flowers from I didn't, there. yeah i didn't equate bin lane alley with bouquets of flowers so. <laughs> and in the summer they were um i probably shouldn't say this in case any of my neighbors are listening but they were picking fruit from the from the trees that hang sort of hang over into the alley behind people's homes lovely so no absolutely lovely but that's about as close as i've come to taking any form of transport in the last year is waving at the uh, the train driver uh, to entertain my children <laughs> yeah i i haven't been on a train since august i think so that's six months yeah and i would be on the train three or four times a week before that so a, a dramatic change in, in how we're all living um, and planes. God, I don't even know what that feels like anymore. I, I don't know what the cramped kind of sweaty sensation of being, you know, stuck in a metal can 30,000 feet in the sky is like anymore. Um, so, yeah, so today I guess we're talking about transport because it is an extremely dirty sector, both in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and air pollution. I'm going to put you both on the spot again. I have, even though you don't, you haven't seen all the, the reams of yellow text in in the production document, I was I was actually wanting to complain about this because I, I, there isn't any. I've come to rely on it. It's they're, they're in a private dossier. That's why. Oh so, my uh, god, <laughs> <laughs> that's worse. That's worse. Yeah, you can't even see the answers now. <laughs> so surface transport. Okay, so you know that's basically everything apart from what's in the sky. What proportion? of our national um, emissions, do we think that is? From all forms of surface transport, whether that's uh, people traveling for leisure, for work, and are we also including things like freight transport in there? Well, I tell you what, let's let's simplify this. Let's, let's talk it by household. So what share of our household footprint is given over to surface transport? Ooh. That's like, this is the average household. I, I want to say a third, although maybe... And that this is where it gets difficult. So, you know, I'm sort of thinking, has has that gone up in recent years as our well, power well, sector we'll, has... We'll come on has, to that. Yeah, hold oh. your horses. We'll come on to that one. Uh, a third. Fraser, what do you reckon? Yep. I was, yeah, instinctively, I was along the same lines. I'm going to I'm gonna jump on Becky's coattails. You know, yeah. You're both pretty much there. It's about 27%. If I were to ask you what proportion of aviation... Ooh. Well, not much in the last year. Well, this was, this was before before COVID. Maybe a sixth, a fifth. Right. So what, somewhere between sort of around 20, 15, 20%. Yeah. 
Fraser? Well, what, what proportion of aviation as it accounts for total emissions? Is this of, of household? So as flying as a household, domestically or internationally, what, what do we think that accounts for in our household footprint? Uh, oh, on average, I, I, I wouldn't say too much. Yeah, maybe 14 or 15%. Well, it's about 12%. So actually, it's interesting. You've both gone for higher for, on both of those. But together, getting around accounts for 39%, nearly 40% of our household yeah. emissions. Now, that varies from household to household, though, right? Yeah, and that's where we're getting into discussions around just transition and you know who, who racks up those air miles. But Becky asked the question before around how these emissions have changed. So if we just keep on surface transport, the answer is they've barely changed over the last decade. So surface transport emissions have, have fallen by just 3% in the last 10 years. Wow. Yeah. The big kind of factor in this, that there's some things reducing our emissions and some things increasing our emissions from surface transport. What do you think is pushing our surface transport emissions up? Bigger cars, SUVs. People buying cars. Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So this is a really big Really big problem. They love it. So yeah, the SUVs that that kind of patterns really cancelled out a lot of uh, a lot of the gains. Yeah. So on the one hand, we've got cars becoming increasingly efficient. We have, I guess, in recent years, started to see a push towards uh, electric vehicles, which will have will have minimised emissions. Um, but it's no good your vehicle being more efficient if it's just bigger and using more in total. No, and you know the, one of the big factors is is not just uh, being more efficient, but using it more or less, we can see, you know, in terms of the, the, what they call the modal share, so which mode of transport you use, 60% of trips were covered by cars, over three quarters of the distance covered by cars. And the really shocking thing, 25% of those journeys were under two miles. Wow. Wow. So these are some of the things we're, we're hoping to to cover off today. Um, question to you both. What what do you think are some of the big solutions then for net zero? How do we get there? Ban cars. For, for transport. Arre- arrest people who have cars. <laughs> Put them all in prison. That's not a popular <laughs> policy, that phrase. So, so I actually, no, I've, I've been thinking about this quite a lot because I am actually guilty of that sub two mile journey or or short journey. It might not be sub two mile when I take my kids to nursery. And I, I've thought about this quite a lot, but I am not a confident enough cyclist to be willing to cycle on a road that has a ridiculous number of potholes in it, especially just coming out of the winter alongside quite big cars and what dragging my kids behind me in a trailer. And for me, it just poses too much of a risk. And I have also lived in cities that are fairly cycling friendly. So I lived in Oxford for quite a number of years and I would still feel too scared to cycle around Oxford. And so for me, thinking much more carefully about urban planning and making sure that people have the infrastructure to feel like they can make those choices and to feel like they can uh, you know, get on a bike or walk and it will be safe and it will be a nice mode of transport for them. You know, that's a massive part of the puzzle that I just feel is missing. I, th- I think far too often we're looking for people to make changes and there are reasons that might have nothing to do with their personal beliefs or values as to why they're traveling in ways that might be unsustainable or indeed go against what they, they want to do. Yeah. And Infrastructure is a massive thing for cycling. Um, you know, you'll often hear suggestions that, that you know there just isn't simply isn't the will, the demand for cycling, um, and, and hence we can't make massive uh, changes to the infrastructure that would impact upon uh, you know our resident car drivers. Now, actually, in COVID, the thing that rebounded uh, against all expectations that, that kind of went through the roof, as it were, 
uh, was cycling. I mean, the numbers of people cycling last summer were double the normal number um, for, for the against the previous year. Uh, the, the other re- well, the shops sold out of bikes, didn't they? All my yeah. local shops, you, like you, you couldn't, couldn't buy a get bike. an inner tube for love and money. Um, so, and I should know. Uh, so, but you know, there were some things that rebounded quickly, and of course, we've had multiple lockdowns and all this. But have a guess at some of the modes of transport that rebounded quickly, and some of them which are still really flagging. Oh well, I can. I'll I'll put my money on the fact that buses are flagging. Oh yeah, big time. For, for bus, train, and tube, it's somewhere between 20 and 40% of levels pre-pandemic. Cars are recovering strongly. We're at a sort of, you know, 60%, 70% mark. And the, the other things that, we're, you know, are really doing very well, freight, uh, both for heavy goods and, and uh, vans. I mean, I look outside the window. It's just a sea of, of Amazon drivers. Anyway, so today we're hoping, I guess, to try and square this all off national international challenge around transport trying to add a bit of a local flavor to it so before we move on you know what what are you what are your thoughts about how we can make a difference locally i think we can make a big difference by looking at what needs to change to enable a fairer and more sustainable transport future so you know, just looking at the UK, the number of local authorities that have declared climate emergencies and are now developing their strategies and plans and perhaps rethinking what transit strategy looks like in all of that. I think there is a huge opportunity to be looking at how these can be developed in more sustainable, you know, possibly even car-free ways, but also thinking more, um, more about how transport can meet the needs of everyone in society. Because I think we also need to be very clear that if if the changes that we're seeing are resulting in, um, you know, negative impacts on public transport, whilst we're seeing a rise in car journeys, we also have to recognize that not everybody has equal access to a car. And that's not just sociodemographics, that's also within a household, cars tend to be male dominated. They tend to be used by different sort of demographics than than say often uh, people who have caring responsibilities that might be trip chaining, that might be, uh, you know, dropping the kids off, going on to work, doing a bit of shopping. It's it's deeply embedded, Mm -hmm. deeply embedded with social practices and economic practices. And, uh, And before we hear from, from our guests. Fraser, final word. No, I think that's, I'm glad you raised that point, Becky. I think that's a really important thing is that when we talk about transport, you're not just talking about journeys and trips and wheels and feet and, and wings. You're talking about a hugely complex socioeconomic and a policy system as well, where you have to consider not just reducing emissions, but also I would argue that we agree now that we need to do something formative on transport. We need to reimagine transport. And I think why not try and use that opportunity to right some of these wrongs and right some of those injustices that are inherent to our transport system as it is today. Yeah. Um, and ban all the cars, Fraser. Is that ban the- all the cars, arrest all the uh, drivers. drivers. Cyclists, okay. cyclists are quite annoying as well. I consider myself in that. Um, I don't know what to do about that. Well, at least you've got a bit of self-awareness. <laughs> oh, dear. So, uh, so get along, join our discussion on social media. Find us at energyrev underscore UK. Use our hashtag local zero. Ping us any questions or things you'd like us to address or look at in future episodes and we'll do our best to get back to you. Okay, and without further ado, we're going to hear from our experts on the issues of transport, net zero and local solutions.
I'm Ian Doherty. I am a transport researcher really for the last 20 plus years now and I'm at the University of Stirling where I'm a professor of public policy and governance and the Dean of the Institute for Advanced Studies. My name is Debbie Hopkins. I'm an Associate Professor in Human Geography at the University of Oxford and I work between the Sustainable Urban Development Programme and the School of Geography and the Environment. Welcome Ian and Debbie to Local Zero. Many thanks for coming along today. It's really great for us to be able to focus in on transport as a real key issue for net zero and to explore a bit more about the local solutions. So for our listeners, um, just wanted to really uncover the scale of the net zero decarbonisation challenge for transport. So how big is it and what are the biggest challenges, please? Yeah, thanks, Matt. And thanks for the invitation to come on. Um, I suppose there's, there's two things really which are most important in my mind. So one of them is um, the scale of the emissions profile of the transport sector. It depends how you count it, whether you include international travel, aviation, shipping, for example, but it's something like 35 to 40% of all of our emissions. So it's a big sector. It's also stubbornly refusing to decarbonize or to have its uh, overall emissions profile fall. It's probably the only major sector that's still getting worse in the economy now. So that's a big deal. Uh, and the second thing is that you know part of the reason behind that is that um, people really don't want to change how they travel around and what they do. So um, despite some of the efforts that have been trying to get people to change their travel behaviours and seen some of those during the pandemic, um, there's lots of resistance to it. And um, just this morning on the news, you probably have seen the, the latest uh, backlash to the low traffic neighbourhoods in London. So, you know, whenever governments or public authorities try to intervene to make this better, there's an awful lot of opposition to it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it, it seems to happen uh, at a national scale. We can see it in many different countries as well. So um, it's not just happening here in the UK. And it's it's certainly not just a global um, issue, but it, it really does go across sort of geographical scales. We know that road-based transport is around um, 72% of all transport-related emissions. So we know that cars are very, very important. Um, and in the UK, we haven't seen, uh, we've seen sort of stabilisation of emissions, a slight decline in the latest figures. And that's uh, on the back of increasing car use, increasing VKT. So we're still seeing uh, people wanting to be in cars and being in cars. We're seeing small gains or stabilisation because of efficiency, vehicle efficiency, but we're not seeing any real behavioural shifts uh, policy shifts in any large ways. So yeah, it's, it's proving to be a very stubborn sector compared to other sectors which are declining uh, their emissions or decreasing their emissions far far easier. Brilliant. And just, just on the sort of acronym VKT, just for the listeners. Oh, yep, yeah, that's uh, Vehicle Kilometres Travelled. Brilliant. Thanks. So why, so you've both referred to the sector as stubborn. And for me, that's almost like giving the sector a, a persona. But of course, the sector doesn't have a persona. It's due to the actions of the many, many different people that, that kind of make that up. So why is this so hard? Why are we not seeing action? Is it just that, um, you know, we're all kind of championing Jeremy Clarkson and we want to stay in our big gas guzzling cars? Or is there something else that's going on here that is just stopping um, progress? Well, there's a whole bunch of answers to that, Becky, and some of them are kind of short-term ones and some of them are long-term. So let, let's take the historical perspective first. It's probably more or less true that we spend the same time every day travelling around, non-pandemic times, obviously, but we, we spend the same time every day travelling around as we did more than 100 years ago, and we do the same things. So we still go to work, or we go to education, or we go to healthcare, or we go to visit other people and have our leisure activities. What we do is we travel further to get to them because that century plus of investment in transport has 
um, made it possible for us to travel further to do the same things. So we've got this long run and um, kind of economic history that's that's going on. And by the same token, we only kind of rebuild about 1% of the environment every year. So if you've got an imperative like climate change and decarbonisation that you want to do something about quickly, you kind of look around and go, well, um, even if we reverse what we're doing, our kind of normal incremental change rate is about 1% per annum. So it's head scratching time. Well, we actually have to do something which is pretty pretty bold in terms of you know a policy intervention and and um, most people don't like bold policies they don't like being told what to do i mean to be honest there's there's so many things that are part of this like our identities and how we behave as people but i think it's really important that we don't look at this as people want to drive like people want to drive to the shops or people want because actually a lot of the out of town shops have now been built in places that people physically can't walk to that they actually can't get there by bike because we've built them you know if i think of oxford where the big supermarkets are they are really hard to access if you don't have a car they don't have bus links they don't have all of these things um and you know the school issue people are performing a certain character you know being a good parent is choosing the best school for your child often and some of the conversations i've had with parents in in work around transport to school has been exactly that like i feel like i need to um and so there is this broader system of issues that i think come together in how people make these kinds of decisions to me this is one of the really interesting impacts of the pandemic because we've had to do that and everybody's kind of signed up to the public health imperative so we've changed what we're doing it's a really open question i think though about whether and we'll all decide to do the same to try and meet the challenges of the climate emergency in the same way. Just just unpicking some of that is a big part of this that it comes down to how our how we live our lives and how our you know if we live in the city how our cities are structured is is urban development a massive part of this and are we relying on the way in which our cities or towns are developed to effectively govern the way we travel? Well, yes, in one word. I mean, a slightly longer. Um, answer to that question would be that we've we've got hooked in a particular kind of um, consumption society which is built around the car um, and built around this idea that we want more choice and we need to, to kind of exercise that over greater distances. So, you know, you, you look at how everybody, everyone's everyday lives have changed over the last few decades and some of the obvious examples are, you know, like, again, pre-pandemic, where we shop. And you know the rise of the supermarkets as opposed to the corner shop. Most people drive to them; they don't they don't walk to them. And then there's other stuff that happens in society. You know, in the 1980s and ever since, we had parental choice in the state school sector, which led to this massive explosion of this thing called the school run, which is about you know what a quarter of traffic and a third of all congestion on normal school days. Um, and I've got my son's primary school that I can see out the window from the room that I'm in, and that's you know just literally and metaphorically horrible every day when you see people that could you know quite easily walk or cycle to that school but choose not to and then of course you get into these vicious cycles where people think it's not safe to do that so they better get in their car and run their kids to school as well so there are these kind of incremental and long-run trends that we've built up, up over not just years but over decades and people you know people like the lifestyle that they're able to afford and they're able to consume and you know most people most households spend something like 15 percent or something of household income on transport for a lot of people that's the shiny car in the driveway and once they've bought it they want to use it we'll get back to the chat with ian and debbie shortly but what tried and tested methods are there to encourage people in our communities to choose more sustainable modes of transport it can feel big and amorphous and difficult but if you break it down and localize it practical solutions present themselves. I've been chatting with Leo Murray, Head of Innovation at Climate Change and Transport Campaigners Possible. 
the obvious thing for communities to do is to work to change the conditions, the physical, you know, the built environment where they live so that it is more conducive to more sustainable forms of transport. So support cycle lanes. Most people do support cycle lanes, but in a very shallow way. So that is if you survey people, most people will say, yeah, I support cycle lanes. But the problem is that when an actual cycle lane is proposed in a specific place, what happens is the minority of people who hate cycle lanes and don't want them to be built are mobilized by the threat of a cycle lane and will throw everything they've got at stopping it from being built. Whereas the people who are broadly in favor are just not motivated in that same way to fight for it. So, um, you know, these are fights that are playing out up and down the country at the moment. And people just need to get involved in those. There's also the more hyperlocal, you know, the neighborhood level stuff, low traffic neighborhoods. And I know we're going to talk more about that. Low traffic neighborhoods, you know, what the literature shows is they are an incredibly effective intervention at getting people to shift from driving cars in cities to walking and cycling. And that's because so many of these journeys are short journeys, you know, by the combination of making driving that journey slightly less convenient, but walking or cycling it much safer and more appealing. Um, the combination of those two things, you just see very large increases within these areas in people walking and cycling. And, you know, actually data is showing that, um, you start to see a fall in car ownership within low traffic neighborhoods. You know, after a few years, you just start to get attrition. Low traffic neighborhoods are um, not actually a new idea that the, the phrase is new, but they've been around for a long time. Um, and although they are being led, you know, proposed and led by local authorities, actually there's nothing to stop um, people who live on a road that is blighted by rat run traffic from saying to the council, we don't want this through traffic anymore. You know, um, this is making our lives worse. And, and it is, I mean, this is the, you know, the, the, the thing about needing to move away from cars that is, I find hopeful and encouraging is that it's something that we would want to do anyway even if climate change wasn't a thing. So that imperative that we know we need to move away from, from a car-dominated transport system and actually a car-dominated society, actually, that's brilliant. It comes with all these other socioeconomic co-benefits. You know, it's just basically really good for society because you'll have fewer people killed and seriously injured. It's going to reduce toxic air pollution, um, you know, community severance, uh, kids being able to play out in the street again. That is what you see in low traffic neighborhoods. You see children chalking the road and skateboarding, which you just can't do these days on a reg on, on, an, on an ordinary residential street. So that's a really basic thing to do. And actually, even if we zoom in another level, right down to the micro, micro uh, neighborhood level, um, parklets. We're massive fans of parklets at Possible and we're just working up a, a big campaign to do it. So a parklet is a community garden uh, installed on an on-street parking space. So it's where you convert an on-street parking space into a little garden that is uh, available for anybody to use. So they typically have a couple of benches and a few and a few pot plants. One of the one of the types of infrastructure in intervention that is most effective 
is just reducing parking provision. Reducing traffic and car use, you can achieve that just by taking away parking spaces. Yeah. I know friends of mine who live, uh, we're in the south side of Glasgow, friends of mine who lives on busy like tenement streets and they've given up their cars because it's just easier than trying to find a parking space. Yes. Well, this is it. I mean, you know, our cities, for the most part, our cities were never built to accommodate this much traffic. And so lots of people live, lots of people in the UK cities live in park deserts, you know, where they might not have any access to a private garden of their own. And the nearest park is just not actually within walking distance. You know, a lot of places don't even have street trees. It's just really bleak. And in that scenario, you know, places like, you know, the neighbour you've just described in Glasgow and, you know, much of London, particularly the poorest communities in London, the majority of households are living car free. And yet you step out the door and the street's still full of cars, right? It's full of cars all over the pavement as well as cars speeding down the road. Now, you know, that is iniquitous. You know, 70% of people in Hackney, no, no cars, you know. So getting rid of cars from the street benefits everybody who lives in the area, up to and including the people who, who previously owned that car because it's not, it's not good for you anyway, being behind the wheel of a car. It's not good for the soul, but, you know, it's, uh, it's just air pollution inside a car can be much worse than it is outside of the car. Because the in, the air intake sucks in the exhaust from the car in front. So, yeah, parklets are a really brilliant thing to do. And in the UK, there's a bit of a sort of nascent movement for parklets, which has begun in Hackney with a woman called Brenda Push, who didn't have a garden, didn't own a car, and applied to the council for a parking permit for a garden. They said, well, what's the registration number? And she was like, no, no. It, it, it's not a vehicle, it's just a garden. And they said, oh, well, you, well, you know, no, you can only put cars in the street. She was like, well, that doesn't make any sense. You know, here's all your policies saying that you're trying to get people to use cars less. So anyway, cut a long story short, she just did it. Gorilla laid it, rolled out some AstroTurf and, you know, put up a couple of parasols. People loved it. And then Hackney introduced a, a, an official parklet scheme whereby communities can apply to convert on street parking spaces two parklets and there's sort of eight eight or ten of these things in hackney now um very well loved by the communities that they're in and you know we need to just see that up and down the country so anyone who's listening you know just you could start right away if you don't own a car and particularly if you live somewhere you know you don't own a garden just apply to the council for a residence parking permit for um for a bench and a few and a few plant pots see what happens you can catalyze a change you know just literally brenda as an individual did that you know it sparked all these other communities going yeah we were one of those you know in really bleak bleak corners of acne you know with no with no parks inside i i love that because yeah it's cat catalyzing change from the bottom up i'd never actually heard of on-street parklets before and honestly i just love the idea Thanks to Leo Murray. Anyway, just to say as well, we'll be hearing more from Leo in the next episode in a couple of weeks' time. But for now, back to the rest of the chat with Ian and Debbie. The conversation has moved on to freight and delivery vehicles. 
Matt Fraser and I were talking earlier about how when we look outside our windows now, we just uh, gobsmacked at the number of, you know, Amazon deliveries coming by and the fact that freight has changed so much. So it's not just about how we're traveling in our homes, but about how, you know, things around us might be changing as well. Debbie, I know you've done quite a lot of research in this area. Maybe can you tell us a bit more about how that's changing? COVID has just been fascinating to see how people have shifted into what was already a growing trend around parcel delivery, around getting things to home. But we need to think very carefully about whether we, whether that's substituting travel or whether it's additional mobilities, whether it's additional things moving. And very often we notice it's the latter that people are consuming more um, and actually returning a lot as well. So we're seeing lots of duplicated um, trips. So it might not always uh, be as sustainable or as um, uh, beneficial as it might So I just want to touch upon something very interesting that you said a moment ago around infrastructure. So we, the previous two episodes to this, we've talked a lot about heat and buildings and supply chains around that and how we can make the change there. And I'm I'm aware that big infrastructural changes will have to happen to decarbonize heat in the home and electrify it. And we need to see, you know, bolstering of uh, the grid and the rest. But, but in many ways, I think if, if you're to ask your average citizen, um, are they more or less empowered to make choices around transport versus heat? You would have a variety of, of, of responses, and some would point to the fact that their choices around transport are really very much tied to the infrastructure available to them. Is there a road outside the house? Is there a train station? Are they able to connect with an airport? So, yeah, I just wanted to ask about the importance of the decision-making around infrastructure and how much we, as consumers, must rely on the state and industry to make decisions first. That's another one of your small questions, Matt, isn't it? Um, <laughs> first of all, I want to furiously agree with something that Debbie said a minute ago about you know understanding the variation in individual individuals' motivations to do things and how they kind of aggregate up at the population level. So transport is this fabulous example, I think, of what's sometimes called the tragedy of the commons. So you've got everybody making what they think are absolutely perfect, rational or responsible decisions for them and their family and their situation. But at an aggregate population level, it's a disaster. And that disaster is congestion, it's lack of safety, it's emissions and all the, the negative externalities, all the things that go wrong with a transport network is, as well as right with it. I mean, I I tend to take a bit of a minority view here, actually, and I think that there is more scope for behaviour change than is commonly assumed or commonly admitted. And I think there's enough evidence out there, particularly from times a bit like this, but also other work that I've been involved with in the past, looking at times of disruption, whether that be severe weather or strikes or other events, that actually there's more potential for people to change what they do than we automatically say. Because, you know, the last thing that most people want to do in their daily lives is actually have to think about any of these problems because they're hard and change is difficult for people, particularly change in everyday routines that are that are normal and familiar so yeah i know i know people say that um it would be hard for me to change because but a a lot of the time that's not true because you know what you could get out on your bike or walk to the local shop and a lot of times instead of going to the supermarket again but also it doesn't take that many of us to make those choices collectively for the balance of what makes sense and infrastructure to change quite a bit if i can reflect that back it to Debbie and I think Ian's point that actually maybe there's more scope for us to take choices and some of the positive net zero ones is is that is that fair and particularly when we consider the inequalities of what people can and can't do uh you know what what means and resources they have at their disposal 
often we we fall into a trap of talking in very ableist terms that you know people that can walk and can cycle you know pedestrianization is always that really exciting lovely thing to talk about because we all enjoy drinking coffee and tables outside and walking around when there aren't cars and trucks about um but we always need to remember that there's always going to be a certain proportion of people who require cars, who require alternative forms of mobility, for whom buses are incredibly problematic. Coming to the infrastructure issue, there's research that shows that it doesn't matter if there's a bus stop that's near you if it's in the wrong direction. So if it's not, if it, it can be ridiculously close to your house, but actually if it's not the way you're traveling or if it's sort of slightly out of your, your sphere of, of knowledge in your home area, it's, it's absolutely pointless. And um, I think that these types of things become very important with what's going on at the moment, actually, with with women and safety, lots of thought about where you feel safe being. Do you feel safe stood at a bus stop at night? Would you think it was appropriate for your child to be stood at a bus stop in the dark at five o'clock in winter or, you know, in certain there's, there's places around my home area that I don't walk to because I don't feel safe. I could walk there geographically, physically in every context I could, but I don't want to because I don't feel safe. And I think that this is where transport becomes really, really tricky because the car has become synonymous with ideas of safety when actually we know cars aren't particularly safe. Car parks are not safe spaces. Cars themselves are not safe things to be in. But they have become, they have been marketed in such a way. And we have seen this continuation of these ideas around cars being cocoons or being um, all sorts of spaces that are that are good for us, um, despite the fact we know that they're really not. It's not just about physical impairment or disability or that whole set of issues, which is really, really tricky for a lot of people, but um, simple to explain kind of social and economic ex exclusion and the number of people that simply don't have access to a car, except are expected to try and cope with getting to work, getting to school or college, getting to, to fulfil their caring responsibilities in a society which, as Debbie says, is increasingly designed around somebody that can afford to buy a new SUV every three years. But to me, that says that sooner or later, we're going to have to look at these people for whom we've spent lots and lots of money making their life easy over the last few decades by building them more roads or indeed very expensive railways to help them do that commute to work and say, well, sorry, folks, it's time to change what you do. Well, so I want to pick up on that. I mean, what I'm hearing and certainly what I've experienced um, in my own life is that the choice might not be because I want to drive, but because for whatever reason, it feels like the better choice. Either I can get there faster or I feel safer or, you know, for, for whatever reason that is. So can you envisage a transport future where the low carbon option is simply the better option, the faster option, the cleaner option, the option where you can sit and work whilst you're doing it rather than be stuck in a traffic jam? I mean, is that a possibility? I feel like it absolutely is a possibility, but I get very nervous about moving into kind of utopian futures. It's never going to be perfect for everybody. There's Cars are going to exist. There's going to be a certain need for cars to still be around. So if we block cars out of areas, it becomes very tricky for some people, particularly in an aging population. Unless we have a complete overhaul of our public transport system, if that happens alongside it, that's, that would be marvellous too thinking about freight, how stuff gets places. And this brings us back to thinking about the high street, thinking about the built environment. You know, what happens to the high street in a post-COVID world, I think is really significant for then what become the hubs of our towns and cities, where things need to go. Like, are we going to get less 
heavy goods vehicles going into city centres and town centres because we don't have shops there anymore. Actually, our shops are in different places. And so I do a lot of work with freight drivers and I'm yet to meet one who enjoys driving into towns and cities. And actually, the other day, somebody described an urban consolidation centre to me without actually knowing that an urban consolidation centre was something that people talk about or have trialled even because they said, actually, what I want to do is drop the freight at the edge of the town or city and then people in little electric vehicles can come and pick it up and take it in because nobody actually enjoys being in these environments. So actually thinking about how our cities are configured, where shops are, how people are going to them, you know, what what travel people need to do will become really part of this. Trying to unpick that, are we going to have to recalibrate our, our destination, where we go to work and live for transport to follow suit? Because my feeling is that we we can't tinker with transport unless we unless we fundamentally transform where we consume, live, uh, and work. You know, again, my take on this is that there's a bit of a fallacy that goes around, which or there's two fallacies. One is that if my next BMW is an electric one, then I've done my bit. Secondly, there's the fallacy, which is that if only we were a bit more like the Netherlands, it will all be fine. Well, the problem, of course, with the Netherlands is that they might have, you know, about what is it, a quarter of all trips done by bike, but their carbon emissions from the transport system is even worse than ours because they've just got more of everything. So at some point, we have to do exactly what you just said, Matt, and take a stand back and go, whoa, hold on. Is this really what we want? In pre-pandemic, despite what governments had said, nobody really knew how we were going to decarbonise transport. I think what the great opportunity of the pandemic is to ask ourselves the question, what do we want in the future? We probably have tilted the scales a bit to wanting to travel less, particularly in a crowded train in the morning. We probably want to be able to walk to local shops in cleaner air and these kinds of things. So I think there is perhaps an opportunity to to capture some of that for the long term. But the problem is over the summer, if there's a great kind of euphoric reaction to the end of restrictions and the kind of completion of the vaccination programme, and we've got an extreme version of last year, which is, hurrah, let's go back to normal, it might all be lost. Yeah, I think that rebound is really worrying, that sort of behavioural rebound after COVID, like after COVID, you know, the money that the government keep talking that we've all saved and that we're going to go and spend it all. Um, it's hypothetical money because I'm yet to meet anybody that's saved a, a lot of money through this period. But um, yeah, I think that that's, that's a fear for me around us actually falling back into to old patterns. But, you know, in terms of where we live, work and, and consume and, and what, yeah, what happens after this period, I think... For me, some of this, it, it's the connectedness between transport and everything else. I keep reflecting back on where we're building new houses, for example. We, the government, keep putting money into housing developments that are outside of towns and cities that demand cars. And as a first-time buyer, you are only really given support to buy brand new houses. So, you know, there's very little support to buy houses within towns and cities that already exist. So we then buy houses outside of towns that always have a car, uh, a driveway, often have a garage, often you're required to get into that car to go to the local shops because at the moment there's not a community, but they insist it will become a community at some point, you know, and you get all of these things that that further perpetuate the transport system and reliance on cars. And at the same time, the government is saying how 
proud we should be that we're hosting COP and that we're going to be doing everything in our power to um, be the, the world leaders in uh, responding to climate change. It's a constant contradiction where the transport system is never really brought wholeheartedly into the conversation of how we're going to do anything about climate change. So what needs to change? Do we need to be thinking better when these when these housing estates are built about what those transport links look like and not just the transport links to get you into the city centre to go to work, but you know, thinking about if it's first time buyers, they're probably going to be younger families. There's probably going to be kids there. There's probably probably going to be trip chaining. There's probably going to be people at home that are not going into the city centre. You know, if I think about my journey here, I could get into the city centre in 15 minutes, but the park that is a lot closer to me, that's just too far to walk to, especially with my kids, there's no bus route there. I have no option to get there other than to jump in a car, right? So so the sort of infrastructure is, is a massive thing. So is it about embedding that infrastructure as these things are being built? Or is there something even more complicated that we need to address around, for example, like the uh, the way in which we perhaps zone our cities or even more fundamentally, the nature of sprawl? Yeah, goodness. All of the above. I mean, I think <laughs> that's the problem is that, you know, none of it is thought of in a joined up way. So obviously, I mean, now, I mean, coming back to Ian's great point about electric vehicles aren't going to be the solution, but many people think they are. In new builds, what they've now done is put like electric charging points. So you can buy a star, you know, a starter home, a two up, two down that will cost you a fortune anyway. And it's got an electric charging point because that's how they're going to solve it. That's the solution, right? For the, or, for the electric vehicle you can't afford, For the electric right? vehicle you can't afford. <laughs> and then there'll be two car, car club cars, which, you know, and maybe somewhere to park your bike. It's really um, tricky uh, because it, it's not joined up. And I don't think that there is a huge desire to join it up. And coming back to your point about the buses as well, even if there is a bus, then very often they are so expensive. If you already own a car and you have children, you think, right, am I going to sort them out, get them on my own, put them both, get them on the bus, pay all the tickets? What a trauma when I can actually pop them in the car and we could be there in two minutes. And this comes back to the driveways. You know, if you have a driveway, you're far more likely to have a car. Your car will sit on that driveway a lot of the time, but then you will use it for trips that you might not quite need to use it for because it's there already. And then we get into this cycle of, of repeated before you know it, your children all have cars and, you know. So Ian, you talked before about behaviour change and about how people could probably be doing a bit more and we shouldn't we shouldn't be forgetting about that. But who else needs to make the change as well? So what do we need to see local government doing? What do we need to see national government doing to bring about this future where transport becomes a much more integrated part of society? Well, I'm probably in danger of straying into outright prejudices rather than any research-informed opinion here. So you know, take that as read. Um, I'm I'm a big believer in the old adage that we get the politicians we deserve, actually, as a collective, as a society. So I, I look around and I think about the state of modern Britain and I look at how poor the housing is. I look at how poor the labour market is in a lot of places in terms of its opportunities. I look at how mediocre a lot of our education is. And the real giveaway for me, I look at how much really bad food costs us in the supermarket. And I think... That's the case because we've been prepared to put up with this for so long. I think our transport system looks at it as it does because people put up with stuff that just isn't very good. And of course, the flip side of that is that the easiest way out of that is to opt out and, and privatise it for yourself and buy a better car. And I, I don't think until, until we have a different kind of political economy or politics of transport, to use that phrase, that we are going to see much change. 
the optimistic version of that is that I do think we can see the beginnings of it in a lot of places. So you can certainly see the beginnings of that in towns and cities that have younger populations where people are less likely to acquire a driving license in their 20s and 30s than they used to be. So they're much less likely to use a car than people in previous cohorts were. They're much more likely to cycle. They have different consumption habits. They shop in different places. They do. They travel around uh, in different ways. So I, I think that's happening and I think that's all positive. The problem, of course, is, as it always is, it's not happening fast enough. And there's a whole bunch of kind of political inertia built into the system where the people that turn out to vote more often are, of course, likely to be precisely the kind of people for whom the transport status quo suits best. And actually, I mean, it's not really answering the question, but it made me reflect on some of the truck drivers that I do work with who um, sort of long haul truckers from the UK that go into Europe. And so at the moment, they're sending me photographs of them at work. And uh, the thing I keep getting is food, photos of food, because they point out how poor the food is on the motorways here, like the sorts of food that truckers put up with, that travellers put up with, that we've completely normalised in this country. The fact that our truck drivers sleep in laybys because it's safer than paying £40 to go and sleep in, um, in a service station. And on the continent, it's free, secure, and the food is great. And they're like, why are we treated like people on the continent, but we're not treated like people in the UK? Like, what is it about infrastructure that we, why do we have this so wrong? And it is really interesting to me how much it just comes out in all of these different ways that that we seem to have this system that serves nobody, yet everybody is so hell-bent on protecting and refusing to see an alternative. So, so somebody mentioned fares and the cost of travelling earlier. I mean, a great example of that for me is, is our complete and utter inability to have the same kind of standard ticket that works in any one of the hundreds of European cities that you could all go to and travel around. We've created this system that costs so much to run that again, pre-pandemic factoid, but you know, a, a Glasgow Edinburgh season ticket on the railway costs more than an entire season ticket for the whole of the German network. Or, you know, the 365 euro city movement, which is about an annual season ticket for your city that costs you a euro a day, like starting in Vienna and is kind of spread to Berlin and, and various other places. Like this is light years different from what we experience here every day so we're, we're gonna have to wrap up but i just want to ask one last question of you both this is local zero so we're all interested uh, about you know local action to tackle this and um, this can involve councils this can involve communities individuals just in a few words 20 30 words what can we do as neighborhoods as communities to drive forward this net zero transition i'm only going to use two words is that okay yeah perfect yeah even better Walk more. <laughs> Excellent. Debbie, can you expand? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I think local action is just so important. What Ian was saying before about, you know, some of the pushback there's been to these low traffic neighbourhoods. It's happening here at the moment. We've just had infrastructure put in. There's people all over the newspapers complaining about it. However, actually, I think that they're the minority and they are being the noisiest. And I think that it's that issue. I think it's people thinking about what they want from their futures. When COVID first started, people were talking about the fact that the, the roads were quieter, children were learning to ride their bikes, people were out on the streets. And yet already, well, already within a year, people have forgotten that that first lockdown, their children learned to ride bikes on the road because it was safe. So actually getting back to that and thinking, what sort of communities do we want? And those are communities in my mind that we're able to move around in that children can play outside without being worried about their safety and vocalising that, not allowing those people who are complaining about these infrastructures and these different changes to have the last word. 
So I have a really important question for Debbie, which is... Oh, God. <laughs> why are truck drivers sending you photos of themselves? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Honestly, my phone is just photos of truckers, honestly, all day and all night. And It's research. <laughs> I get these text messages because um, they obviously stop driving at about five, six o'clock. So suddenly at nighttime, I'm just getting photos. I'm like having phone calls with truckers. I mean, could, but this is for your research, right? Not just because, okay. <laughs> it's 100% research. It's not weird. Well, it is a bit weird. It's basically like a mobile method approach. So they just spend, well, it's supposed to be a week, but the vast majority have just carried on doing it because I think they're quite bored in the evenings. Uh, and they send me photos of like where they are, what they're up to. The vast majority of the time, it's like photos of the views that they're seeing as they drive around Europe. They're just basically trolling me because they get to go out and see the world and I don't right now. Debbie, there's definitely a, a coffee table book here, I think. It's something that... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'd buy it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I hope you can both stick around now for our favourite bit of the show, which is future or fiction. And without further ado, I'll hand over to our compare and mastermind, Fraser. Thanks very much, Matt. Yes, so future or fiction is a game that we play at the end of every show where I present our guests in the panel with a fancy new technology, a new innovation. And you have to decide if you think it's the future, i.e. it's a real technological development, or if you think it's fiction, i.e. I've pulled it out of my backside. So given that we're talking transport this week, I've, uh, I've done my level best here. This technology is called... Suspense. Are you ready for this, Becky? I'm so ready. Wow me, Fraser. <laughs> <laughs> this, this technology, this technology, drum roll, is called... Unleaded Zeppelin. That's Unleaded Zeppelin. Oh, I appreciate that so much. It's so bad it's possibly true. Yeah. <laughs> so, Unleaded Zeppelin, the greatest name for anything ever. Zeppelins have been historically plagued with issues of safety and reliability. However, developers have begun testing a new solar-powered wind-resistant Zeppelin designed as a greener alternative to cargo and freight transportation. Do we think it's the future or do we think it's fiction? Mmm, it's a goodie. Ian. Uh, I'm, I'm immediately drawn to all those solar-powered interstellar science fiction freight things shuttling between different planets Fraser, rather than something more prosaic I, I've got a feeling that might just about be true actually because I'm sure there will be examples of freight flows where the routes would probably work for that and if the logistics were clever enough the absolute journey time wouldn't really matter that much it's more about reliability, so I'm going to go with fact. I think I'm I'm quite into the interstellar, the these ideas as well. Ian, make of make of that what you will. <laughs> Debbie, what do you think? What do you think? Well, I've seen some images. Was it Amazon that had they sort of patented some delivery thing that sort of is along these lines? Although I'm not convinced it exists or will exist. Um, <laughs> yeah, I feel like it. I feel like it might it might be real. So. Um, I'm sure I have seen a few different companies trying to develop these these blimps as a as you say as an alternative to um, air freight. And I think again, I'm not the engineer. I will defer to those who are. Um, but I think it's a much more energy efficient way of of transporting freight. 
what I didn't see was that they were powered directly by solar. So you, you may be able to power them up, and I think some of them were electrically powered. So I'm going to put it to you, Fraser, the weasel words here. <laughs> solar powered, is it carrying solar panels, or is it just powered, booted up on, on the ground with solar power? It is carrying solar panels. Carrying solar panels, right. Mm, uh, okay, I, I'm, I'm out. I think I'm out then on that basis. There's still a, a gas element to it. It doesn't float on the counter solar panels. Yeah, so that, that was going to be my question, right? So what is it filled with? Oh, fluff, goodies, nice things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's still, it still requires some kind of gas to get it up and off the ground, right? To, to actually elevate it. There's got to be a hot air joke in here somewhere. <laughs> Fraser's terribly bad description of what the thing was. Would it, would, it, would it have some kind of electric propulsion that was more about steering at either end of the journey rather than about absolute speed or direction or something? Or am I getting too sci-fi taken away now? <laughs> yes, that's that's how I imagine it, yes. We're going to have to go around a quick, yes, it, it's real, no, it isn't. So we'll, we'll begin in, in the order we had before. Ian? Oh, I want it to be real, so I'll stick with fact. <laughs> Debbie? I kind of want it to be real too, so I'm going to say yeah. Becky? Total fiction. Total fiction. Total fiction. <laughs> I'm, I'm so on the fence here. I'm going it's not true because I don't see it actually having solar panels on it. But I, I know they're developing this. You're such a centrist, Matt. The answer is... It is the future. Solar power zeppelins are the future. California-based company Varialift have been working on a prototype zeppelin powered by solar while still using gas for elevation. They estimate that shipping cargo by airship could use as little as 8% of the fuel of typical air freight. Wow. Amazing. Wow. Becky. Yes. I am so glad to have finally caught you out. It feels like it's been so long. <laughs> What, because I got one right? <laughs> I know, Matt, why didn't we go with our great, you know, experts? We should have trusted um, the experts. <laughs> I'm, I'm on a rotten losing streak. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for coming along this week, guys. It's been a pleasure having you. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thanks very much. It's been great. So you've been listening to Local Zero. If you want to connect with us and ask any questions, please find us on social media with the hashtag Local Zero and tweet us at energyrev underscore UK. Until then, thanks for listening. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Produced by Bespoken Media.